or really, I would say, not an idea, maybe a, a mode of instruction that we find in the most remarkable book ever written by man. I'm saying this, um, it's a pretty bold statement. Uh, but I think that that's a fair argument. When you talk about the Talmud, uh, it's probably the most remarkable set of books written by men. When I say written by men, this including the, t- the, the Torah, because we believe the Torah is written by God, even though Moshe is the one who wrote it. Who's, he's the scribe, he's the typist, he is the stenographer, uh, and he's the one who delivers it to us, but it's not his ideas. Uh, and in fact, we're told that if someone, you know, we uh, our belief system, Maimonides writes, is that we cannot believe that Moses invented anything on his own. And we have lots of evidence for that. I gave an entire five-part series. I have five and a half hours of content proving this point. So uh, we could talk about it maybe uh, some other time. I, I don't... So the, Tom, the oral Torah, that's the Talmud, right? Yeah, pretty much. You're saying is... I don't understand your statement. I'm saying it's a, it's a remarkable set of books. That's, it. that's what I'm saying. And, and, I, and, I, and I made the uh, proclamation, uh, the... Uh, I made the... Uh, the argument, I'm trying to make, I'm going to make the argument, but I made the statement that it's the most remarkable set of books ever written by men. Why do you say it's written by men? It's, it's, it's authored by it's human authors. Human authorship, no prophecy involved. Are people still I thought, uh, adding to it? Huh? Are people still no, Talmud's a sealed book. Sealed book, it was uh, canonized in the 5th century, uh, 6th century, early 6th century in the Talmud. Are there, are there existing... Volumes or something that are on Roma? No. Well, yes, but not 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 of the Talmudic era or realm. Talmud's done. Yeah. So essentially, Talmud is a collection of sixty-three books. Uh, we're in. We find everything that we need to know as Jews. Everything, all the details. Uh, and not only that, we find how to live as a Jew. So you want to have a sukkah, right? You have a holiday of Sukkot coming up. So what does sukkah look like? You know, well, what's it made of? What are the walls made out of? And what's the schach made out of? And, uh, you know, what if it's really high and really short? All the details of law. We have the holiday of Rosh Hashanah coming up. There's a book of the Talmud called the Book of Rosh Hashanah. And, as you may guess, what does the Book of Rosh Hashanah talk about? It talks about Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, you know, there's an entire chapter talking about what renders a chauffeur a kosher chauffeur or not. You know, which animals can you use and take their horns out uh, off to use and make a chauffeur for? Yeah. yeah. Well, what makes a chauffeur kosher? Well, it has to be a certain, certain kind of animal. It has to be a chauffeur, you know, and, and how it's made and how it's, uh, and how it's blown and how, you know, what intentions you have to have when you blow it. And, you know, can, can I, uh, you know, if I'm passing by a synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and I happen to hear the chauffeur, but I'm not thinking at all about fulfilling the mitzvah of chauffeur, do I still need a chauffeur again or not? If someone blows a chauffeur, but he's subterranean and no, people only hear the echo of the chauffeur. Like that's a question that we you, you don't you don't typically encounter that uh, in Rosh, uh, typical Rosh Hashanah. So when, when people are standing on mountaintops, blowing the chauffeur to signal to each other, pass the message. Why the would they do that? We're talking about on Rosh Hashanah. There's a mitzvah to hear the chauffeur. Right, but what I'm hearing you say is that a chauffeur is not a kosher chauffeur unless it has. You have certain intentions. True. So there has to you no, have to have the, the intention of fulfilling the mitzvah of shofar, or else you are you 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 don't fulfill it. So 
So, for example, if it just happens to walk by and you hear the distance, someone blowing shofar, you're not thinking at all about 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 fulfilling the mitzvah. You don't fulfill the mitzvah. It's just an example. I'm just giving an example of what the Talmud would go through, like all the different kinds of laws. Can, can you go back a tiny bit? I'm still stuck sure. on the idea. I thought the oral Torah was given to Moses. At true, Sinai. true, 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 true. So I don't so, know. Wait, I don't understand your first statement. Yeah. Wait. So the content, the content, uh, is is from Moses, a tradition from Moses, but it wasn't written down. So it wasn't finalized in the book, it wasn't canonized, it wasn't finished in a book. But it's still the word of God. Oh yeah, that's why. It's, that's why it's remarkable. But it's not <laughs> made by man. I didn't say that, it's written by man. Authored. Authored, as comparison to the written word, that's authored by Moses. But no, it's not authored by Moses, it's authored by God. Moses only writes it down. Just transcribing it. Just like if uh, you write a book and you don't know how to type. You know, how you I'm have not too sure I understand it. I, I guess I'm splitting hairs, but I guess I don't understand the difference. Once I mean, the other one's a human interpretation. Well, no, 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 that, 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 no that, that's a mistake to say. That's because that's Ben pointing out that that... Um, no, no, no. The Talmud yeah. is just writing down that that's the companion of the written Torah. We have a written Torah. Written doesn't, the written Torah doesn't tell us how to live as Jews. Do you know that? The written Torah does not tell us how to live as Jews. You understand, Brad? Your written Torah does not tell us how to live as Jews. You know why? Because if I gave you the written Torah and I say live as a Jew, you would come to me and say, hey, I can't, I can't do it because you don't give me any instructions how to do it. You say wear totafot between your eyes. What is that? What is totafot? You have any idea what the word totafot means? It's not a Hebrew word. Not a Hebrew word. It's the one example of not a Hebrew word. Yeah. Good. What does totafot mean, Brad? <laughs> well, this is the board that <laughs> 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 sounds <laughs> Enlighten us. And totafot is the the, the word the Torah uses for tefillin. Yes. Well, what does tefillin mean? What is, what's a bot? How do you know it's a bot? What is the, who told you it's a box? It's in the Talmud. No, it's not in the Talmud. <laughs> It's not only that; it's it's a companion work with the written Torah. Is the interpret is the under, not interpretation is is the decryption of the written Torah. The word, like the, instructions, kind of. Like yeah, like how to understand the written Torah. Imagine, imagine God wrote a book. Think about this for a second. God wrote a book. Right? God made our bodies very complex, right? You know that. Yeah. You have billions and trillions of cells within you, and pipes that could surround the the, the, the world multiple times. You're a very complex organism, Brad. <laughs> so the written Torah is a very complex document and if you just read it at face value you would have no applicable practical use for it it wouldn't tell you what to do you wouldn't know how to utilize it that's why God gave us the oral Torah that's why made. there is a there, it, it, it's as if it's, it's, it's encrypted and there's a decryption key the encryption key is the traditions of how to understand every word of the Torah. I, I, I always thought the Talmud was the human or the rabbinical interpretation. And so that's a major, major mistake. Um, and it's a common mistake. Um, and I don't know when this myth was uh, perpetrated. Um, even though I will argue that there are some things in the Talmud, we know, Maimonides writes, that there are some things in the Talmud that were developed later, like rabbinic law. And that is something which is a, a little bit different than quote-unquote oral Torah, because oral Torah means the companion uh, um, uh, um, 
set of instructions that went with the written Torah to understand it. And where does this come from? It came from Moses. Same way, same place the written Torah came from. Moses got it from God, gave it to the Jewish people. It's talked about in the Talmud and used. I'm sorry? It's yes, so the Talmud primarily, I would say, is a book that's actually writing down the old Torah. It writes down other things as well that became part of the big, greater corpus, what is now the, you know, the Torah of the Jewish people. So like rabbinic law uh, wasn't necessarily given to Moses at Sinai, right? It was developed later, right? For whatever reason, either because they wanted to add fences around the Torah. Have you ever heard of that, term, that idea? Um, so the Torah itself says that it, it instructs leaders of the Jewish people to take preventive, preventative measures uh, to ensure that the Torah doesn't get encroached upon. Now, what does that mean? What it means is, is that if there's a Torah prohibition, like not to uh, pull a branch off a tree on Shabbat, the rabbi's responsibility is to make sure that that actually gets fulfilled. So what they would do is they would stop you... Why do you use it simpler? Like the pen. A pen's a good example yeah. as well. That's they would stop you one step before that. So the rabbi said, you're not allowed to ride a horse on Shabbat because people who ride horses frequently grab onto trees and they can pull off a branch from the tree. That's an example of rabbinic law. Or, for example, the one that, that, that Ben brought up, the Torah says you cannot ride on Shabbat. Hmm? Can't ride on Shabbat? Well, what if you just handle a pen and you just hold it all the time and you put it over the air, right? Will you be, have a greater likelihood of writing if you're handling the pen the whole Shabbat? Well, of course. So the rabbi said, rabbinic, this is rabbinic law, rabbinic edict, don't, do not lift and move around a pen on Shabbat. It was an innovation that came later. That's rabbinic law, and that's also the Talmud. But primarily, the function of the Talmud is to write down the oral Torah, and the oral Torah means the companion corpus of information that was transmitted orally to understand the written Torah, the very, very complex written Torah. Thus, it's like a companion work. If you want to understand Torah, you have to have both written Torah and oral Torah. One without the other won't work. Why? This is a little bit of a subtle point. If you have the written Torah without the oral Torah, you have no idea what it means. And there are some examples that in itself says you have no idea what this means unless you... Right? Like, like, the, like the eating kosher meat. Right. How do you, how, what makes it meat kosher? Well, it has a OU. It's kosher, right? <laughs> There's, that's in Deuteronomy, right? It's, a, it's an explicit verse in Deuteronomy. You have to have an OU on all your on all your packaged foods. Well, how do you? Well, it has to be kosher. Well, how, how do you make an animal kosher? Well, you have to eat a kosher animal. Okay, once it's a kosher animal, how do you process it? Well, you you, you process it in a kosher way. Well, how do you do that? You go to a kosher slaughterhouse. Well, what do they do there? You know what they do there? They do very. Um, uh, rigid uh, set of instructions of how they slaughter it and how they inspect it and they look to see uh, if it has any lesions and there's 70 different kinds. Maimonides brings down seven different, 70 different kinds of, of illnesses and diseases that the animal could have that will render it unkosher. And you know what happens in a kosher slaughterhouse when they slaughter the animal and they find out that it has a puncture in its lungs or it has cancerous uh, tumors all over its internal organs. You know what they do with that animal? Give it to goy. They take it and put it in the goy pile. Because yeah. it's not kosher. Even though it was, like it was a cow, cows are kosher. But it's, yes, it was kosher. It's a kosher species. But this particular animal is not kosher because it does not fulfill the, co- the kosher requirements that the Torah, that the Torah outlines. Now, where is it in the Torah? It doesn't, say, it doesn't say in the written Torah. The Torah says just eat kosher food as I instructed. Where, where's the instruction? It must be in some other 
accompanying document. Or not the document, a set of, of, of instructions. So when there's, um, in the Talmud, when the um, people are going back and forth discussing an issue, and they come up with a resolution, what was that example of? Is that like an example of rabbinical law? Well, a lot of it is, is rabbinical law, but um, like a lot of it is, is just is dealing with very, very fine nuances of oral Torah. Like an example I was just reading was, um, that you're probably familiar with, um, the reading of Megillah. Is it the 14th, 15th? So, and then they go back and forth good. with the rabbinic, like one rabbi says this and one rabbi says that. So, so actually, what is that re- example? Re- reading of? the Megillah, yeah, I feel like I'm inundating everyone's information here. Reading the Megillah is an example of a rabbinic mitzvah. Now, I want to separate between rabbinic mitzvah and rabbinic edict. Like, not touching the pen on Shabbat, that's an edict. That's just an ins- a way to ensure that a Torah mitzvah is not, is not uh, transgressed. As opposed to a rabbinic mitzvah, is a mitzvah that the rabbis themselves uh, um, oh, came up with the on Megillah. their own. Like the Megillah, that, uh, that's, that's a, to commemorate the Purim story. So that's a, a mitzvah. That's, that, a, that's rabbinical a rabbinic mitzvah. mitzvah. That's it's not right. 613 mitzvah. It's not part of the 613, exactly. Um, and there's seven examples of those mitzvahs. For example, we have the mitzvah of lighting, lighting candles on Hanukkah. Remember, Hanukkah came much later. That's a mitzvah, right? It's a mitzvah to light the Hanukkah candles. Well, if Hanukkah's story happened in, uh, uh, in, in the uh, second century before the Common Era, well, everyone agrees that Mount Sinai happened a thousand years, more than a thousand years earlier. How do you have a mitzvah commemorating a story that happened 1,100 years after the mitzvahs were given to us? The answer is because, yes, they didn't have the mitzvah beforehand, and this is a rabbinic mitzvah. So there are some examples of rabbinic mitzvahs. So how long did it take to write the Talmud? Oh, the Talmud is essentially the collection of every innovation, every insight, every clarification of the written Torah and the uh, traditional uh, interpreta- uh, 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 interpretation or decryption of the written Torah up to that point. So essentially, it, it's the... Yeah, interpretation. Sorry, I, 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 I changed it to decryption because interpretation sounds like you're interpreting on your own. And even though, like I mentioned, there are some examples of That's where. That's where that spread. Yeah, okay, so it's a bad word, decryption. <laughs> it's all okay, your so we're, okay, so we're, so we're <laughs> clarifying it. I'm interpreting what I said. Um, we're, you know, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it, it's, it's an issue of semantics, but, it, but the connotation is, is very important. Okay, so, so Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Moses has the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments is just the beginning. Okay. Moses uh, comes down. What does Moses do there? What does Moses study in those 40 days? That he does multiple times. He studies the oral Torah, the Torah, which is what to do as a Jew. He comes down and starts to see the Jewish people. They have an entire year at Mount Sinai, an entire year. Right? Well, actually, 10 days short of a year. So 350 days. So what are they doing there? Huh? What are they doing? They're studying all day and all night. It was a mass. It was the, it was the largest national study house because the Jews now are, are absolutely fresh. They don't have anything. It's not like us, you know, even if we're coming to Judaism later in life or we have, we have some exposure, you know, we know what a matzah looks like. You know, I guess maybe they did as well. But that we, know, we know what mitzvahs are. We've heard of Shabbos, you know. If you just left Egypt, you know nothing, right? So this is a time that Jews have to learn. learn. Learn what? Learn everything. Well, how do you learn? You start asking questions. You start being taught. Well, there's such chaos. Everyone knows nothing. 
You know what they do? They divide the nation into, you know, into groups of 10, groups of 50, groups of 100, groups of 1,000, groups of 10,000 groups. You know, we're familiar with that story. What happens? You know, you have every little group of 10 people they study together. They have a question, they, they move it up to the group of 50, which is 5 of 10. And the group of 100, group of 1,000, 10,000, etc. Um, so you mentioned to Brad that you don't, there's no new addition to the Talmud. So when, like, for example, you know when you were talking about the war and people were like, you didn't take off school, you are like, oh, we're going to write Something I don't remember your little notes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So what if someone has a insight to a ta- uh, Talmud? What happens to that? You write a book. You write a book. It's yeah. not added to the collection. Of no, it, no, that's right. And what, what were those little things that you were writing? I mean, they were just. Oh yeah. So these are these are these are like Torah insights and new stuff that maybe were never said before. Right. So, so however, going? however, our, the role that we have today in our in our in our advanced Torah study is different than the role that the Talmud has. Where it's, does that collection of insights go? Okay. They, so, 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 let's no, it's not lost. No. So let's start. Let's start from uh, from from uh, a few generations or a few centuries earlier. So the time of the. Uh, the time of the uh, <laughs> in medieval times, we see an enormous explosion of Jewish literature. Right, the medieval rabbis called the Rishonim. So people like Rashi. Have you heard the name Rashi? Rashi is the paramount commentator on all of Jewish writings. So all twenty-four books of the Bible, all the books of the Talmud, everything. And in fact. He's so indispensable that you you literally cannot learn a page of Talmud. You cannot read Chumash. You cannot read the, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, as the same in German, without Rashi. Rashi uh, is you know the great commentator. You know he's one example. Maimonides from the same time period. And now there's so much literature that they're adding to this expanding corpus of, of Jewish writings. Well, what's their role? Their role is to decrypt, to, to, to decrypt the Talmud for us. Because the Talmud was such an enormous undertaking of writing down everything that it is, the entire collection of oral Torah, right? And it's so vast and so subtle that that needs explanation as well. If you read the Talmud, you read one page of the Talmud, you're like, oh, I can, I can, one page of writing, and it's only a small sliver of the page is actually the Talmud. So you would think that you would read it like in twenty-five seconds. You know, it looks like the size of a of, a, of an a, you know of, of, a, of an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. It's nothing. You read it in three four minutes, and then you start reading it, and, and you can't get in three four minutes past one line because it's so dense. And the argument, this argumentation, is so you know it, you know it's so subtle. It, it's so nuanced. And they and they tend to skip over what they consider to be the obvious point. Which you, you to you might be <laughs> obvious to a five year old, right? They're or arguing the, the nuances. Yeah. Yeah. That's so obvious. So we don't even talk about that. Yeah, and then for us, we're like, what's going on? You read the Talmud today without Rashi, you're totally lost. It's all French to you. So or if you know French it's all So what Mandarin. about all the it's all Mandarin. You know Mandarin it's all Swahili. What about all the Rashis out there? Huh? I, I I don't mean to say all the Rashis, we're, but you know Rashi where was, are all the scholars going. Yeah, we're Oh, like Rambam? 
Where are all the Rashi's insights Mon- being Mon- consolidated? Where are they consolidated? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Today, like, you're asking questions today? Yeah. Uh, today, there are more people studying the Talmud for scholarship purposes than any other item of wisdom out there. There's hundreds of thousands of people whose main occupation, main goal in life, whose main you know, focus and you know, thing that they spend the most time with is studying Talmud. Really? And so these are some of the greatest geniuses the world has ever seen. Today, study the Talmud. Are there any holes in the Talmud? What do you mean? You've got the 63 books, you said? Yes. And it's all oral. And there are these groups of thousands of people on Mount Sinai starting the process. Well, yeah, okay. I'm with you. But if you have multiple people writing things down, how do they come together? And and how do you know where one ends and the other one starts? What do you mean? How did they know? So, remember, this is an important point. Another important point we have to add to the conversation, the flavor here. Um, What they're writing down is not ideas. These are laws that are applicable every single day. So, if I ask you, how do you know that the way you tie your shoes is the right way to do it? Maybe when you were told how to tie your shoes, you know, when you were six years old, maybe you got it wrong. That's possible. Maybe we're all tying it wrong. You know? So, so that, that's, a good, that's a good question, right? It's possible. When, when, you don't even know when you learned how to tie your shoes. It's a long time ago. Maybe you got it wrong. Well, the answer is that you, no, you've been doing it every single day since then. You got it right. right. The laws of the Talmud are not laws that are laws that are not applicable. These are laws that are applicable to Jewish people for millennia. Thus, every, and even today, every child knows what tzitzis looks like because their parent has tzitzis. And they know what a Shabbat, what a challah looks like because they've seen it and they have one every week. And they know what we say when we say Kiddush because that's what they say every single week. And they know what Matzah looks like because, not because they studied it in some book or it's written down in some, some book that's hidden in some, it was, it's very dynamic. It's right, a way of life. There was no seeing it before. This is all brand new. That's, that's, that's why Moses had 40 years to teach the Jewish people. And that's why Moses is in constant communication with God. And by the way, I, I, I'll tell you that the, the, the Talmud says that when Moses died, they forgot 300 laws. The day Moses died, they forgot 300 laws. Now, a little secret, whenever the Talmud says the word 300, it's a, it, it could be an exaggeration. Because there are many times that when the Talmud says a big number, it just picks 300. So if you have a little experience in Talmud, you'll see that, oh, they stabbed the guy with 300 spears, and the guy had 300 uh, parables of a fox. And they ask Rabbi Kiva 300 questions. You see it again and again. You see it dozens of times at the Talmud where it says the number 300. So does the word 300 mean 300 exactly, precisely? Or it means an enormous number? The latter is, is likely true. So it means that when, Mo- when Moses died, well, what happens? The direct channel to God, at least in, 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 in the sense of Moses, a complete, clear channel, well, that's gone. So what do you have? Joshua, Joshua is great. He's not, he's not the prophet Moses was. The face of Moses is like the face of the sun. The face of Joshua is like the face of, of, of the moon, says the Talmud. Right? Moses is giving off his own light, and Joshua is just receiving from Moses, has no light of his own. And to us, we look at the sun and the moon, they look very similar. Right? If you look at the sphere of the sun and the sphere of the moon, they're exactly similar to us. Right? To the uninitiated, you see Moses and you see Joshua, they look the same. 
However, once you, you, you understand that Moses is the sun and Joshua is the moon, if I had like a picture of the moon and the sun, it's possible that you wouldn't know which one it is. You know that? I could take a picture of the sun or the moon, and I'll ask you, is this the sun or the moon? You wouldn't know. Why? Because there are certain times during the year that the, that the moon is, perfect, is a full moon, and you get the right angle, it looks like it looks, it looks as bright as the sun. Or it looks like maybe the sun took a little off day, you know, this little cloudy day. Right? It's possible for us to not know. Uh, but there's a tremendous difference. So yes, there were some laws that were lost. And of course, throughout the generations, some subtleties and nuances were, were lost. Um, no one, you know, that's, that's possible. That's why we have Machlokas. Machlokas is the idea, like, the, in, 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 in the Talmud, we find a lot of disagreements. And the question is, how did disagreements come, come about? Now, the first documented disagreement that we have in actual applicable law is only 2,300 years ago. That's all we have. That's the earliest disagreement. With Hillel? With Hillel and Shammai, that's right. Yeah. So essentially, we're able to go a thousand years from Moses until the times of Hillel and Shammai without a- having any documented disagreements in practice of the law. Which one was We have other disagreements. We have like behavioral disagreements, maybe uh, um, disagreements in, in leadership, in, in, in theory, but not in actual observance of total. What was the question? What was the disagreement in Zuzah? No, no, well, I don't know about the tradition. Shammai, Shammai Hill had three disagreements. That's it. They themselves. I think it was which way to put the mezuzah. Was that? Well, what, I'm no, asking, that's was much, that, no, that's, that's much, much later. later. That's later. Either way, um, this is a fun conversation. I was not planning on going this route, but uh, um, I was saying. It is interesting, right? Yeah. I'm saying there's been many, many, many books written on this subject. But either way, you should know that there are more. People studying this, the Talmud, uh, today than any other realm of wisdom, which should make you. And these are all Jews, by the way. Well, not all Jews, because you have lots of people in South Korea in studying. China, yeah, exactly. Yes, they're studying yeah. Talmud, and a lot of people just study Talmud just for the intellectual stimulation. Uh, but if you think about that, if I told you that the book that's being studied intensely, more than any other book, is actually written fifteen hundred years ago. It would make you wonder, like, how is it possible that something that's so old is yet so relevant as to be the primary uh, book of, of, of the scholars? You know, that, you know that's, and these are Jews, by the way. These are, you know, Jews are, uh, have a tendency to be creative and to be innovative. And you would think that an old book like that, why would the Jews cling to it so passionately? And so many years after it's written. And the answer is because it's the most impressive and amazing book ever written. I saw a picture of, I guess it was the last draft of the cycle. On the last day and everyone gets together. Yeah. Like, I think it was in New York. They do a giant, giant, giant stadium. The whole stadium. Yeah, just 80,000 people, yeah. Why? Black hats and people, yeah. It's a stadium full of people reading the last draft. Well, like this. So It's like tickets to the Super Bowl. So there are 2,711 pages of Talmud. Now, when I say Talmud, I say there's 63 books. The truth is, there's 63 books of the Mishnah. The Talmud is another element of the Mishnah. But the Talmud was not was only written, at least the Babylonian Talmud was only written on 39 books of the Mishnah. This place, this place sounds so, it sounds so complicated, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. It is, right? <laughs> well, essentially, when the Mishnah was written, they were still in Israel. And therefore, they wrote everything 
everything, all the Mishnah laws of all the laws that apply to Jews. When they wrote the, the Talmud, they were already in Babylon. They only wrote the laws that applied to the people in Babylon. Thus, they didn't write all the agricultural laws. There's a lot of agricultural laws, but they only apply in Israel. You, you know, you only, you only, uh, right? You only fulfill them in Israel. So the Talmud. So there's a book so of Talmud called Shvi'is. Shvi'is means the seventh. And it's referring to the seventh Shmita. year. But Shemitah, we call it Shemitah. And the seventh year. And that's a mitzvah in the Torah to let your land lie fallow for every seven years. Right now we're in the Shemitah year. And there's no Talmud written in it. And it's only Mishnah. Now, that being said. It's still it's still Mishnah. Now Mishnah, you know, when there's still a lot of Talmud discussion about it, but it's not a, it is not a dedicated book in the Talmud written. Why? Why? Because it was written in Babylon, three hundred years after the Jewish people already left Israel in mass, and therefore to them the idea of observing Shemitah was very distant. Can you explain the difference between Mishnah and, and Talmud? Yeah. So Mishnah is laws. Talmud. So all the laws of the Torah. All the laws of the oral Torah, which is really the same thing. When I say Torah, I mean that together, what it is God instructed us, and what was added by the rabbis later, either in the form of new rabbinic mitzvahs, which is only a couple, or the many, many rabbinic edicts, which is a lot of them. The laws were written down in the Mishnah. Now, everything else that relates to the laws, which means all the broader applications of the laws, the sources of how these laws are found in the written Torah, what does that mean? Like, if you have the oral Torah, these, these two companion works, one of them is the key, so to speak, and one of them is the encrypted work, they feed off each other. If you just had the written Torah without the oral Torah, you wouldn't know what the written Torah meant. If you just had the oral Torah without the written Torah, you wouldn't know is this subs- substantiated in the written Torah. So essentially, they each, they each they complete each other. The two elements that you need, both of them, or else you have nothing. Thus, your oral Torah tradition is wonderful, and it's great. However, if it's not substantiated by the written Torah, then we can disregard it. So, how every law, how it trickles back to the written Torah, that link of showing you where the... If I tell you the application of a law, I give you the interpretation of the law. I don't tell you where, where, the, where you find this verse in the written Torah... There's the, the link has to exist. Because if you have one without the other, well, then it's questionable. Where is this interpretation coming from? How do we know? How do we, How know? Do we know? So that's all done in the Talmud. Now you'll say, okay, well, just write the verses, right? You would think just write the verses. Well, remember that the written Torah is a very complex book. And if God wrote it, it's possible that the verses will be so harebrained we have no, we'll, like, we'll have no idea that, where the verses come from. And very, very often, the verses are not a, a straight-up verse. It's a word in Genesis and a word in Deuteronomy, and they have to be the same word. And that creates a linkage between those two elements, the, the, those two discussions, and therefore laws are transporting back and forth through that link of, of that same word. Like, there's no way anyone could have written this, like, if any human could have written this. It's literally as complex as your brain. It's just, it's, it's, it's just mind-boggling. And you have these things going around like at, at rapid speeds, you know. And and you ask, you know, one word here, and the same word elsewhere, and then it's 
you know, tra- you know tra- we, we, tra- we trade laws back and forth. Uh, we have a general principle and then an exception and then a principle and how that works and all these rules of, of derivation and what's called the fancy word is exegesis of how we actually derive laws from the written Torah. All that mathematics is done in the Talmud. So all the reverse engineering, so to speak, of understanding how an oral law is substantiated in the written Torah, all that is done in the Talmud, as an example. The broad applications of the law, the exceptions of the law, the various new developments of that law in the form of rabbinic law. Um, other examples, other related examples, um, questions about the law. Like, uh, you have a law, well, what, what if some other, you know, like for example, there's a law that you have the how to get married. Right? So how do you get married? So we know from the presentation of the rings. This is a good example. Right? Presentation of the rings. So we know that there's chuppah, mm-hmm. and then there's a ring, and the man says, and they're married. Mazel tov. Fantastic. Where does that come from? So, in last week's parsha, in Deuteronomy, it says, a man marries a woman, and the word he uses is yikach. And then in Genesis, where Abraham buys a, funeral, a, a burial place for his wife, Sarah. You guys remember that in Genesis? Abraham has a wife, Sarah, she dies. He's devastated. With, you know, he's trying to find a place to bury her. And it says, Abraham, he went and he bought a double-decker cave from a fellow named Ephron, and he paid him 400 silver, silver coins. And the word that he uses is the same word that he used for marriage. So there, the rabbis of the Talmud tell you, by the way, this same word is not a coincidence. One of them has to be Genesis. One's in Deuteronomy. But in the Torah, right, the way the Torah writes themes, written Torah, is not always straight up, you know, as full sentences. It's one word here, one word there. They could be miles away from each other, but they're saying, they're teaching you one, teaching you about the other. Thus, just like Abraham was able to buy his, that transaction happened with money, and he uses the same word, so too that marriage could happen with money. Like, that's how we know it. Now, that's how it's written in the written Torah. Now, if I, if I just gave you the written Torah, back to our example, Brad, I gave you the written Torah, and I handed it to you. I say, okay, how do I get married? You would have no idea, right? How would you, how would you have no idea? Because it's encrypted. It's encrypted. It doesn't say explicitly get married by giving range or giving money or monetary equivalents. You open the Talmud. Talmud says, oh, actually, that's how you do it. And in fact... We could work it back into the Torah. Okay, now, says the Talmud, what if a guy says, you know what? I want to marry half of the, a half of the woman. Half of the woman? Yeah, I want to marry half of the woman. He, so he goes under the chuppah and says, you know what? I want to marry half of you with this, with this coin or with this ring. Now, obviously, the guy's got problems. <laughs> That's established. Like the top hat, the I don't hat, know. Left side, right side. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's a good discount. It's a good question. Why would someone do that? But the Talmud never asked that question. The question the Talmud never asks. Why would someone do that? Why? Because the Talmud's giving you law. It's not dealing... It's, it deals with hypotheticals because hypothetical, hypothetical for reason because it could potentially happen. So it could give you the most crazy hypotheticals because that's the job of the Talmud. <laughs> to actually crystallize what the law is. So it'll ask, okay, what if the guy says, I want to marry half of you? 
Or, I want to marry all of you to half of me. Or if he says, I want to marry half of you with this ring and half of you with this ring. Because that can happen like if she's like half a slave or something, right? Well, that, that, well that's, that's, <laughs> that, 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 that's like, what if a woman is, was owned, a, a slave woman? So she wasn't Jewish. Not, not, not a Jewish slave woman. Non-Jewish slave woman, when they, have, when they had slaves, by the way, even when they're non-Jewish slave women, they become Jewish. Let's, 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 let's push off the whole implications of, of Jewish slavery to a later date. Um, Two weeks ago, right? The captives of war. Well, that's a little bit different. That you know, that's the uh, the uh, the um, the beautiful woman who wants to marry the beautiful woman. Captive. Captive. The be beautiful captive. That's right. Doesn't have to be beautiful, right? What you're the, supposed the, to beautify. The, the Torah calls her beautiful. She started off as being beautiful at one point. Either way, so you have two partners. They own a slave woman. And this woman, she's she's a hybrid. She's kind of Jewish, but she's kind of not Jewish. Why is that? Because she started off as being not Jewish. She was they bought they bought a non-Jewish slave, but a Jew cannot harbor a non cannot harbor a non-Jewish slave. So they actually convert her. So she's converted, but she's still called a non-Jewish slave. So she has all the laws of the Torah. So she's Jewish. And if if the woman decides I don't want to become Jewish, we well, have to sell her to someone else because you cannot have harbor that kind of slave. But she's actually she's in this in the, you know this hybrid state. And let's say one partner decides, you know, I'm releasing her. And what happens when he releases her? She becomes a full-fledged Jew. The other partner says, I don't want to release her. I, I like her still. You know, I want her as a slave. So this is a woman. She's half a slave, and she's half a regular person, free man. Well, what happens? So, there's so much that the Talmud written about that. And he'll say, well, how often does this really happen? <laughs> this is a spider web and all these possibilities. And... If you think that this is, if you think this is the beginning, I'm telling you the example, the question the Talmud asked, and how finely it deals with any potential. If an animal is the case in the Talmud, two animals, one animal is having a baby, they somehow interlock their legs, and the baby goes out of the mother, but right into the other lady, into the other animal. Yeah. Hey, yeah, it doesn't I don't, seem. I don't think I get that channel. <laughs> 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 you know, so but it's, it's so far fetched. It's and it's, uh, and the uh, amount of like, far fetchedness is, and you know why? Because it's not. It's one of the methods Talmud employs is to always give you the edge mm. the most extreme case and then you know everything else right so is there because you said the Talmud is locked you can't update it yes like that. is Sealed. there a new and revised edition well in a weird things that they didn't think about well no because they even though they might have not have thought, this is another another, inter- another interesting development to your question like electricity he, Exactly. So, so it's not a revision to it. Well, so they didn't revise. They don't revise the Talmud. Talmud okay, is immutable. Well, just a just part no, two. No, it's not a part two. <laughs> it's not a part two. What 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 they did, the genius, one of the genius of the Talmud, the, not the individual, but the brilliance of the Talmud is that via its analysis of a certain law, it's going to give you the principle of the law, not just the application, but the principle, and the principle is translatable to new applications. 
So if you understand, if you understood the core of a certain law, right? You understood the principle, the immutable principle of the law, then you could, on your own, interpret it. What would this law? How would this law apply to a new situation? So electricity is a good example. Electricity on Shabbat, let's say. So, is it permitted to do any electricity or not? Well, let's understand the laws of Shabbat and then see how they fit in to the realities of, of, uh, of electricity. And they'd be under certain conditions, like huh? if it prohibits the 39 categories. Right, so the 39 categories, and each one of the 39 categories is an entire section of the Talmud. Well, not an entire book, but a section. So what if you use electricity that doesn't prohibit one of the 39 categories? Well, then it would be, no, would it be a problem. So that's why if you if you ever visit my house on Shabbat, there are lights on. I don't turn them on. Or timers. Or, I, or you could have a timer, so you can use electricity. The question is, can you turn on electricity? Or what kind of electricity? Is there a heat element or not? Is it a fan? Or is it a toaster oven? That's different. It, it, one is heat element, one, one does not have a heat element. Okay, well, it creates a circuit. Well, does create a circuit? Is that prohibited on Shabbat or not? And there are opinions that say that they understand the laws of building on Shabbat as creating something that wasn't there. And therefore, if there was no circuit, now there's a circuit, you're building on Shabbat. That's what be prohibited. You're completing it, exactly. Now, what about if, so that's, so according to that uh, analysis, this, this is, this is, a, this is a, one of the modern, the, the most modern contemporary halacha questions was the idea, really now it's, it's, it's a done deal, but the idea of, of electricity on Shabbos. Um, so one opinion said that it's prohibited because of bone because you're building. Uh, you can, one of the 39 categories of law on Shabbat is, is you can't build. And similarly, you can't build, you can't destroy as well on Shabbat. So you can't build a building, you can't destroy a building on Shabbat. So if making a circuit, completing a circuit is building and breaking a circuit is, well, then it'll be the opposite of that. You're breaking that that was there well, then both turning on electricity and turning off electricity and Shabbat would be prohibited. Unless it's like opening a gate. You're not building a fence by closing the gate. Well, then, okay, you're not building a fence by... You're not building a fence by opening... There's, there's a fence around my yard. I want to go outside my yard. So I open the gate, I walk out, I close the gate. Right, because you're not building. You're not building, that's right. Okay. Um, so, so they have, in hospitals in Israel, they have what's called... Uh, uh, they call it a grubber switch. Grumma means an indirect activity. So if I have an indirect way of creating a circuit, I'm not building the circuit, I'm just preventing, I'm moving away the barrier that was, with, was preventing the circuit from being completed, right? Well, then it's, it's a little bit better because I'm not completing the circuit myself, I'm not building the circuit myself, I'm just removing the obstacle for the circuit to be created on the sun. Well, it's a loophole, but they, 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 they do it for hospitals when they need to do it anyhow. They minimize the amount of Shabbat desecration that they would do. Mm. Now, life. But that's for but, life, though. Right, so, so the, that overrides. But you, but you can see a, a loophole as a way of honoring. Because you're saying, I'm it's, going to the trouble to go through a loophole. It's not a loophole. Instead of just breaking the rule. It's not, it's not a loophole. It's, it's a creative way to not desecrate the Shabbat any more than you need to. So if I made a circuit with a non-ferious barrier... And I remove that non-ferious conductor, and then I have a circuit. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So that would be a grumma switch. So that that, that would 
that would listen. No one says that that's permitted straight up. Um, what they do say is that it's better off than building the circuit yourself, and that's why in hospitals and nursing homes in Israel, this is common. Every one of them has this kind of. Uh, what about water? When you're turning off and on a faucet. So what's what's the problem? The problem is a pump. A faucet, pump, whatever. So that's uh, you know all these questions are discussed in great detail. Um, so how is it different? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know the science behind. Water would be indirect because yeah, you might be well, like, being, like our house. We have a well, so we have a pressure plate. I'm getting water, so it is already pressure, but I'm not the one turning on the the pump. Okay, it's a pressure. What about municipal water? The water has to be in my house somewhere. Yeah, but it's being pumped regardless. No, when I when I'm I open the spigot, when I open the spigot, it just I'm just allowing what would have come in regardless. It's being pumped regardless. My I'm not pumping cold it. water, I guess. And yeah, you so turn on your right. Heater that's why that, that's why we turn on. We only use the cold water to find out the hot hot water because then I'm I'm heating up the water. But if I'm not even if I'm not actually turning on the heater, well, but I'm causing cold water to go into the vacated space of the water heater, and thus I'm heating up water on Shabbat, and you can, can cook water on Shabbat. So, cold water, yes. Hot water, no. Now, what about what, we, what about if we say, let's, we, let's say we assume that, that electricity on Shabbat is not building. Well, then what is it? Well, maybe it's making a fire. If it's making a fire, then you can't make a fire, but you cannot, you cannot extinguish a fire as well. Those are also two of the, of the, 49, of the 39 prohibited acts on Shabbat. Well, but then you're also you're you, you know even if you're keeping it on, if you're actually driving the car, that is contributing towards the fire, so to speak. If it's electric car, if it's electric, but I just keep it on all night. I just plug it in. I'm good to go. Oh, but are you in the car? Are you driving the car? No, I put it on before Shabbos. Oh, you're good to go. Of course, if it's just charging on Shabbos, like no, you're charging no. your phone on Shabbos. What's the difference between charging and driving it? Well, when you're when you're yeah, pressing the button, what's happening electric wise? Are you transmitting electricity? That would be the question. Am I transmitting electricity? Are you increasing or decreasing the electricity needed? Yes. Well, you're That's the problem. I'm opening and closing a circuit. So there you go. And also, you have still have spark plugs in an electric car. So that's Depending on if it's a gas and electric oh, yeah. car. Yeah, but you but see, that's like the. No, you still, have, you still have spark plugs regardless. No, in a pure no, electric car. No. Electric that has a motor. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a generator. Tesla. Yeah, it's a motor. And the batteries. So, yeah, so batteries is a prime example though. Either way, I'm not okay with that. You're getting into nerdy engineering. I know, but to answer the question, if you understood the core principle of the law of Shabbat, then to apply it. Right? That's the skill of the rabbi. The rabbi's skill is going to be to take a certain law and apply it to a new situation that hasn't necessarily been addressed in the Talmud. So even though there are situations that are not addressed, the Talmud doesn't talk about electricity, ever. Yet, there's been more books written about electricity in the Talmud than, uh, I don't know, than Harry Potter. Well, because it affects our lives. I mean, huh? It affects our life tremendously. And exactly, but, and, and it's pulling out all these principles because if you really understood the Talmud, and you said all the uh, uh, elements to the principle of the law in, uh, expressed in the Talmud, all you have to do is to apply that. And then someone will say, well, maybe that's not a good application. And that's where the debate would, 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 would come about. You were saying, sorry. No, I'm just, it's just so sort of complicated. A question. Go ahead. Need your rabbi skills here. 
I will be traveling, so I won't get to hear the chauffeur. Will you two count? Will you two? No, that's not going to count. You have to actually hear the chauffeur. Uh, Bloomington, Illinois. No, there's some sort of center that's in front of the building. Bloomington? Isn't there a, a university there? Mm-hmm. There is I one of my friends is the rabbi in the university there. So they'll have I'm sure. I'm okay. sure. Yes. He can pull some springs for you. Okay. <laughs> that's where I'll be. So. This the university was that the university in the Well it's like right a, the university's right across the street from the hotel where I stay. Well there you go. So awesome. a friend of mine who was in a colleague of mine in, in Israel, mm-hmm. he is the rabbi there. How funny is that? He's a great guy also. Out? Huh? You want to throw his name Sure. Out? I, think, I think it's their friend. Because the reason why it's confusing to me in my head because a different guy, a different one of my friends was the rabbit before that. Mm-hmm. And then because there's no Jewish schools there, he moved out. And then a second friend of mine came in uh, and his name is Hoffman. David okay. Hoffman. So there is a Hillel or something. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he okay. has a shul. He has a, he's had a minion and he has a chauffeur. And he's giving a lecture, and there's there's prayers, everything. Mm-hmm. How do you like that, huh? Mm-hmm. But YouTube, YouTube wouldn't count. I'll be traveling. But you're not listening to the show. So, the laws of electricity, where are they found? Because they're not found in the Talmud. Well, they are from the Talmud. Maybe you might not know. They're not, they're not applied in the Talmud, but the laws are there. Where, where the, the principles co- are Where are the collections of these interpretations of like electricity consolidated? Well, there is... Um, I guess that's what There's my our questions the are. Earliest book, the earliest book was written in the 30s, electricity, in, in the applications of electricity on Shabbos. Um, it was but actually written by a 20-year-old. But not only electricity. A 20-year-old... Let me finish my point. Okay. <laughs> it's a remarkable story. It was written by a 20-year-old who went on to be one of the great halachic uh, authorities of his time. He was Rabbi Orbach. Huh? I'm sorry? What was his name? Orbach. Orbach. Yeah. Oh, um, he was from when he was born. So when he was in his 20s, uh, he was like 21. He wrote an entire like two-volume book on all the applications of electricity shops. Uh, that being said, he's not the only one who wrote it. There's, there's many, there's a lot written on it. And in fact, I once saw a compendium of, of analyses of, of electricity and shops, but it was written in Hebrew. So from the time electricity was invented, Created. Well, it wasn't invented; it was harnessed. To the thirties, <coughs> no, no scholar. Well, well, remember, it's important to realize here. Even though it might have been discovered and harnessed in some capacity, it wasn't necessarily in every shtetl in Europe. You know, some shtetls today don't have electricity, <laughs> right? So uh, it became a big deal as more and more people were exposed to this new technology. You know, what, what's the deal? So I'm, I'm saying that's the earliest book that I know of. There might have been other, at least, responsive. This is an, a, a dedicated book to the subject. So I think it was a, a two-volume book dedicated to the subject. Very dense, very intense book. Um, I, I, I don't know the history of responsa literature on electricity and Shabbos. I would bet anything I own that this is not the first person to ever write about it. I think it's the first book of its kind. There's been more books... Uh, hence, uh, you know, hence, uh, but I'm sure there were, there were questions asked about that before. That. So yes, people that had exposure to electricity, they would know what to do even at that time. Either way, there are some. There is one opinion, for example, that that says 
that electricity is not a problem on electricity on Shabbos, provided there's no heat element, is only a problem of molid. So molid is a fourth, I'm sorry, a fifth problem. So if we said in Shabbat, we said there's building, there's destroying, there's lighting, kindling a fire, and extinguishing a fire, those are the four things that we mentioned until now. Well, there's a, there's a fifth one, and that would be molid. Molid is more of a general principle on Shabbos. Molid literally means to have a baby. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have a baby on Shabbos, because otherwise I'd be in trouble. Because I've had a baby on Shabbos myself, with a, with a minor assist from my wife, of course. Uh, but I myself was born on Shabbos. So it doesn't mean you cannot have a baby on Shabbos. What it means is you cannot engender some new entity that wasn't there yesterday. So if my, if my fan is off and I turn it on, well, now there's a new reality that wasn't here yesterday. So it would certainly be molded. Now the problem is, is that, or the question is, well, if it's, if it's not a heat element, so it's not a fire, and we don't assume that it's bony, that it's building, well, what about, what about turning off the fan and shops? That's the only instance where there may be a question, may be a question of uh, permitting it. But the fan was there yesterday and had potential. Yesterday. True, it had potential, but it, but, but it does but it, I mean, you're not changing a reality, but... You know, you're not, but you're bringing a new reality that wasn't, in, that wasn't there before. You're making a status change, so to speak. It was no, it was a fan, and now it's a fan that's blowing air and whatever. You're turning on a function, basically. Now that would be pro- prohibited. The question is, what about turning off the fan? If it's not destroying, and there's no heat elements, so therefore it's not extinguishing. Well, you're not engendering something, so what is it? It's a heat element. So I don't know. There are heat elements. Yeah, it's a motor. So motors have the windings of the motor. Can't you just leave it on and not worry about it? Uh-huh. Can't you just leave it on and you could. Shabbat and then you could. The question is that that might be the only instance. So I don't know. I don't know. You're you're the engineer. I have no idea what actually happens in the fan. I mean, so there's the a motor windings and they get warm. Yeah. So when you say heat element, are you talking about the intent to heat or a byproduct of a motor? I don't know what I mean. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I, you know, I, 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 I study this uh, <laughs> at a perfunctory uh, study of the, yeah, of the issue because I don't understand the science at all, like the whole knee, uh, you know, electrons. Because the and all function that of the fan isn't to heat. It's, true, it's true. Creating Obviously, the heat true. as a byproduct. As a byproduct. Um, I don't know. This is a good question. I have no idea what I'm, what I'm saying. So, okay, so if you can't create or destroy, right? You can't build. Not cre- build. Create. Destroy. Build. Destroy. Uh, um, uh-huh. uh, kindle a fire, extinguish a fire, or engender something new. But it has to be constructive destruction, right? Yes. Like you could randomly just break something. And... Well, yeah, yeah. What about tying your shoelaces? What about it? So you can't do a double knot. It's not a huh? professional. So on, right. What? It's not a professional. So what they say is that if you do a one knot, you're doing double knot. You're a problem. Because one of the two oh, I mean, of the two of the of the categories prohibited acts on Shabbos are two of the prohibited acts are number one making a knot and number two untying a knot. Loafers, loafers, right? So if you make a if you make a single knot, well, that's the more of a temporary knot. That's not a problem. What about a tie? Let me make a tie on Shabbos. I know people that make their ties. Before Shabbos, and then don't actually untie it or just pull pull it down and pull it up, you know, like that. 
because they say that maybe if I undo my tie like that, ooh, that was good. <laughs> if you undo your tie, you just undid a knot. You untied a knot. And if you make a tie, well, you just made a knot. I guess our son will be lucky because he doesn't tie any of his He hasn't done his in like five years. Yeah, they're all, they're all hanging, <laughs> all still tied. <laughs> but, okay, so if it goes down to the tie, then, sorry, Mom, sex, where you have the possibility of creating life. Well, what about it? Is it allowed? That's going to be double mitzvah. Well, right. why would it not be allowed? It's required, right? It's not required. Well, <laughs> maybe required in a certain well, it's up in Because then you're building. You're well, something. you're well. You're creating. Well, you're doing something with the possibility of building. Okay, life. but let me ask you a different question. You know, can you eat on Shabbos? Can you uh, study Torah on Shabbos because you're building a better world? That means when I say building, it means yeah. that the way it's described is laying down bricks to build. It doesn't mean building in the sense, you know, in in either the reproductive sense or in the world building or team building exercises you know uh, faith building activities those are all okay but how is closing a circle considered building no it would be it would, it, well that, that's a question there's there's, 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 there's books and books written about that how do we apply the law of the Torah how do we first understand what the Talmud is saying the principle and all the all the information we have about the principle and then the application that's why it is very complicated. I'm going to build a circuit, a non-conductive inhibitor, and then remove it during Shabbos. Well, you and then I'm good to go. Well, you have to first try to think of this. But that's what you're saying. That's what they use. Yeah, but then, you, then, you, then it's a grumble. It's a grumble. Then it's indirect. Which is allowed. Which is no. No one said it's allowed. It's better. It's better to do with oh, a grumble. Oh, it's better. So it's better if, like, if you're going to do that very spot, it's better to do with a grumble. Like, like if you have okay. a stable okay. life, it's necessary because yeah. they're dealing with right. So like uh, they used to say, they used to say like <clears throat> you know in the Russian army, in the Tsar's army, they would take Jewish boys, you know, and have them, you know, work in the army. Like and then they would have to write stuff on Shabbat. What happens if you force to write Shabbat or else you get shot? You got to write on Shabbat. Well, do you need to write with the right hand? You write with the left hand. It's better to do something in an indirect way or in a way that's non-standard. Because then it's 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 less of an encroachment on Shabbat. <laughs> Next time you go to turn the light on, use your left hand. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's indirect. Oh, yeah. Wait, I have a do question. You, do you do that at home? Oh. Of course. Who yeah, go ahead. Um, so you say the Talmud so is an interpretation the, yeah, of direct right. laws of the Torah. So then why it's are there two? <laughs> two Talmuds? Oh, so this is a question that also wasn't addressed. I, I was going to address this as well. So yes, so the Jerusalem Talmud, of course, was written in. Not yet. I don't know. You look kind of sleepy. Of course, the Jerusalem Talmud, Brad, was written. What city was Jerusalem Talmud written in? Babylon. Oh, in. Sorry, I thought you meant you were looking for a year. No, no. In what? In, in what? In, in what city? Of course. Of course, it was written. No, 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 it wasn't. No, it's a trick wasn't. question. It was, written in, it was written in Tiberias, but it was written in Israel. Uh, now, that was written much earlier. So Jerusalem, Jerusalem Talmud essentially wrote down the Talmud, but it wrote it down in a different kind of way with Babylonian Talmud. So yes, Babylonian Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud essentially set out to do the same function, to write down the Talmud. 
However, the methodology of writing it down was slightly was slightly different, and therefore, like the whole, if you read Talmud today, it's very dynamic. Uh, it's dynamic in a sense because it gives you dialogue, it gives you discussion, it gives you argumentation, it gives you the position of the of the individual or the or the stance that's ultimately disproven. Change. No, it didn't change. It's just the presentation is very different. Presentation. So like off, what, what well, there the, are cases that what we would do be the have. Difference? Huh? What would be the difference? So, for example, I'll give you an example. Yeah. In the Talmud, the, we say Talmud, we typically mean Babylonian Talmud. Okay. When you want to talk about the Jerusalem Talmud, you, you say Jerusalem Talmud. Okay. Uh, in the Babylonian Talmud or the Talmud, we the Talmud brings it's very much in a in a narrative dialogue format. So it would say, oh, this rabbi said that this particular law is derived from this particular verse. Okay. Which is a very way that would typically, typically start. The guy says, well, how could you use that verse? We use that verse, and the other is the Talmud telling us. And thus, one verse, one law. You can't learn two verses from one law. There's, well, no, that other law that you will learn the other end of the Talmud from this verse, I learned from a third, a third verse, a second verse. He says, oh, no, that verse I need for a third law. Oh no, that law I need for, 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 for <laughs> that law I derive from a third verse, and if you go on like that, and 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 you have to piece it all together. And that's the rabbinic, huh? That's, that's the rabbinic portion. No, no, that's not rabbinic portion. That is, it's not interpretation. It's linkage, linkage of a oral law, a, a law, okay, so a, that's, a that's oral a, wait, law wait, wait, wait. instruction. That's, that's right. The Jerusalem Means the Jerusalem Talmud is much more rigid. Much more rigorous. It's not going to give you that whole that whole dynamic. So it just format. says this is this. This is the way it is. Yeah, that's right. It's more orthodox. Yeah, it's, I want to say it's orthodox. It, it's more. It, it's it's it's. It's less explanatory. It's not less explanatory. It's much easier, I think, in a in a sense. Less argumentative. So no more very. But also, it's not going to bring. It's not going to dwell so much on the on the positions that are ultimately disproven. So if one rabbi, we have instances in the Talmud where the rabbi says, "Ah, this is the law." It's like, oh, is this a law? Well, let me ask you five questions. It goes, question number one. He says, oh, I can disprove, I can answer up the question. Oh, question number two, follow the Talmud. Oh, no, I can answer that. Question four, five, six. After seven questions, they has, ask him a question, he's handcuffed, he can't answer it. He says, oh, we disprove, we, dis, we, we have dis, thoroughly disproven his position. Happens very, very often in the Talmud. So and they say, okay, if it was disproven, just let's, okay, let's edit it. Let's, okay, we did all the work now. It's been disproven. We don't need it. We can take it out. They don't do that, apparently, in the Talmud. No myth about Okay. <laughs> so, so the Babylon Talmud will also well, give you... right, and then Jerusalem, they just say this is right. Okay. Yes, no yes. It's, it's not in the same format. But that also gives us a little bit of, a, of an insight as to how it actually is all... How, how it all so to answer your question, it was updated, so to speak. You asked the question like 40 minutes ago. And I, <laughs> you got sidetracked. Until it got written down. It's so, a good sidetrack, though. It's a, it's yeah, it was an okay sidetrack. Right, so so we have the, the Jerusalem Talmud was the first attempt to actually write the Talmud. And it's an incredible, incredible work of scholarship. Once again, it's, it's thousands of rabbis, you know, essentially dedicating their lives to it. Um... And in fact, there are, out of the books of the Mishnah, the 63 books, there are many books, remember this is written in Israel, and therefore they wrote books on all the agricultural laws have Talmud, accompanying Talmud with them. Remember I told you earlier Babylonian, that the Babylonian Talmud didn't spend time writing a Talmud on the laws of agriculture that didn't apply to them? Well, the Jerusalem Talmud is written in Israel, and the laws of agriculture did apply to them. 
So they did indeed write books like Talmud, companion books to the Mishnah, on the laws of agriculture. Is that why Shmita's not in the Babylonian one? Right, so means on, but but there is a book called the Talmud of Shvi'is or Shmita. That's in, that's in Jerusalem Talmud. So it is. It's there. It's, it's there. It's, that, that's right. But the um, but it's you don't find it in the in, in the Babylonian Talmud. The, the, it wasn't written in the Babylonian Talmud. You just said it was. It's in the Jerusalem, not the Babylonian. It's in the Jerusalem, not the Babylonian. That's right. So not, so one, not one of the sixty three books is about Shmita. What you just said? Sixty books of the Mishnah. How many of those Mishnahs were at, was the Talmud added to it? To it? So thirty-nine. Or thirty-nine in the Babylonian Talmud. Thirty-nine are in the Talmud. That's right. That. Thirty-nine books. <laughs> books okay. of the Mishnah were later on the laws, quote unquote, were risk. added. Uh, the Talmud was added to those laws to those what? books. <laughs> so, for example, you have, if you could learn the Mishnah of the book of Megillah. Right? And you read just the Mishnahs, just the laws. And then you can learn the Talmud as well, because there was a supplementary Talmud written to the Okay, Mishnah. so the obvious question, why was there not Talmud for every 64 books? Well, there, there was, it's just, it, 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 they didn't, I just said, you know, there is, so to speak, but it wasn't necessarily written down. And the reason why it wasn't written down was because it wasn't applicable to them. Now I would argue. So, but if you combine the Babylonian and the Jerusalem one, you'll have, have all almost 64? almost all of them. Okay, almost all. Because right. they didn't know what they didn't know. Well, they they knew it. I guess maybe they didn't study it as often, or they didn't study it as intensely, or they didn't. I don't know. It's a good question. What? Yeah. You know, why wouldn't they? Because we study a lot of laws that we don't use today. Yeah. So why, why they, would they? Why would and, they? And, and I guess why Shemitah not like sacrifice or not? Yes, yeah, so yeah, they don't exactly. They, they, they yeah. sacrificial would they, be that, applicable that, either, but they did include that. So, so it's well, interesting because they expected to be necessary well, at some point. But so if, well, they would so expect it at all. They would expect that. No, but uh, what I'll tell you is also that in Babylon, they, the laws of sacrifice applies to people in Babylon as well, because they would go bring sacrifices to Israel. As opposed to the laws of agriculture, you know. They wouldn't do Shemitah because it's not actually in the land. Yeah, it's not actually in the land. So okay. if you if you went multiple times a year from your little farmhouse in Babylon to Israel to do sacrifices, you would need to know the laws of sacrifice as well. You won't necessarily need to know the laws of agriculture because you're not actually planting on your vacation, right? Right. Even people that have gardens around their house don't actually plant when they're on vacation. Is that right? But when you're entering the land of Israel, when you're there... Giving the sacrifice, you have to know it. You have to know what foods you, and stuff you can and cannot eat. Okay, hey, well, the, you, blah, well the people knew it. The question is, is it, why did they not write the Talmud for it? But the, the sages of the Talmud, they knew it all. Because very often, as I guess is emblem, we, we, emblematic of our discussion, that it kind of meander in different directions. You know, like we talk to one thing, we move on to the next thing, and eventually get back to what we started talking about, which is. I gave up on it because we're not going to actually talk about it tonight. What is it? We can start part one. No, part no, two. no. We'll do part, we'll part, uh, you know, part one next week, I guess, or part two, whatever, after the holidays. I don't know. But the Talmud would very often pivot on, on I mean, so let's say it's talking about the laws of, I don't know, we said marriage, let's say. So it might be talking about marriage, 
and then because it asks a certain question, it'll start talking about something else, and it'll move away from the, the core subject until it finishes whatever tangent it went off onto, and then it goes back to the to the core discussion. That's okay. You right there, Brad? That's okay. That was for for Colby here. I'm good today. Okay. <laughs> I got both blankets out for you. <laughs> well, you got a whole basket right there for it, too. So I have a question. So you, you said that all these insights that people have been logging for all these years, has there been any kind of inkling that maybe one of these might be one of those 300 laws that, that maybe was that lost after Moses? Mm. I mean, does, has anybody been kind of, hmm, I wonder if this is maybe... Uh, that's a good question. Can we, uh, can we ever scholars. get them back? Can we ever get them back? Well, and also, remember, there's the idea of a prophet. So even though we have no prophet like Moses, but the idea of God giving direct communication, or at least uh, nearly direct, I wouldn't call it direct, because only Moses had completely direct communication, like man talking to his fellow, face-to-face. -face. God right. says face-to-face, -face, I talk to Moses. But everyone else, they have some sort of direct connection, you know? Uh, it's a little bit more indirect, but it's still direct communication. That obviously would prevent um, mistakes. You know, if you were able to ask God a question of a certain law, how do we apply this law, then you would be, it would be a very easy way to ensure that the law doesn't get corrupted. You know, so we actually don't find throughout the times of the prophets, as long as there are prophets around, we don't actually find any Mahotas. It's interesting if you actually map out historically, you know, chronologically, of when the when the last prophets we've had, but when that ends, and then when we find the first disagreements, they almost they almost touch each other. Essentially, prophecy ends, and then suddenly disagreements abound. Hmm. Well, it starts off slowly, and there's a trickle, and then we get some more of them. Hmm. Uh, because a prophecy is essentially a built-in verification method. Just like a double checker. Well, the ultimate checker. Yeah, well, the, but the ultimate is really when the Jews actually observe and live that law, you know, it gets applied. It's not just an idea that needs to be checked. But it's a safety, preventative measure to make sure that if something does get lost, you could, you, you know, you could, right. you know, check on it. By the way, they also had something called the Ur Vitumim. Who here has heard of the Ur Vitumim? That's right. So that right. this Kohen Gadol, the high priest in the first temple, at least, they he had a breastplate, and it was, it's like a box, and there's uh, yeah, and there's uh, twelve stones, and the other twelve, twelve stones are written twelve names, and then he would ask questions, and then the light, the letters of the stone would illuminate. It's kind of like it's pretty incredible, it's like magic. The letters of the stone would illuminate. To answer his question, so uh, famous story we find with David uh, or Saul that didn't listen to the breastplate. Well, Saul, Saul does. Saul had a bunch of issues not, not listening. Feels to the prophet as well. That's yeah. why he lost his uh, monarchy. So uh, Hannah, the great hero, the great heroist. Is that what Paul? How do you say the female hero? Huh? Heroine, heroine of the Jewish people, not the. Uh, not the hammer you're thinking of. Heron with an E. Of the Jewish people. So she, we know the book of Samuel talks about this woman, who, the, the mother of Samuel. So she goes to the temple and she's praying because she's barren. She has no children. And 
Ailey, who's the high priest at the time, he thinks that this woman's drunk. She's a drunkard. And he says, what are you drinking here? That's the temple. You can't come, come in. You can't come in to the temple when you're drunk, when you're inebriated. Now, why did we think that she was drunk? Because his breastplate lit up with the letters uh, Shin, Shin, Chaf, uh, uh, and a Resh, and a Hey, which reads Shikora. She's a drunkard. The word Shikora means drunk. Shikor. There you go, Shikor. And Shikora means a female, the feminine, the feminine, uh, like Hebrew as masculine and feminine, just like Spanish has, right? Um, so if a, a male drunk and a female drunk, a, a, a male drunk call a Shikor or a Shikor, and a female drunk would call it a Shikora. So he's like, oh, she's drunk. But in fact, the, he should have scrambled the letters as a cuff and then a sin, and then a shin, and then a ration of the head. And then would have read Kisara, like Sarah. A righteous woman who's barren. How cool is that? So that's obviously not, you know, if it's up to, you know, the coin Gadol is, is the spiritual of the people. He has to know exactly what the message is. But it is some sort of divine message that you can have. Still pretty cool. It's a prophecy that got a message wrong. We were looking for an example. Well, it's not really, pro- I wouldn't call it prophecy. It's yeah, it's something like that. It's 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 some sort of prophetic. It's it's not through a person though. It's through a thing. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like a you can say it's like a dream. It's not really a thing. It's a yeah, but it's not it's not prophecy. It's not prophecy. I I, I see it's 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 maybe a low. Let's call it low level prophecy. Now you have other things. You have low level prophecies in the form of a bat call. Have you heard the term bat call? Or bas call. You say in a sentence. sentence. Right, bat kol means the daughter of a voice. Mm, that sounds weird. Sounds like a reality show. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it means literally. That's what it means literally. Now, what that means is, is that there is an element of prophecy called kol, a voice. You hear a voice from heaven. And a bat means a, a minor, a minor of that. A variant, but a lower level of that level of prophecy, what we call a bat call, the daughter of that, or the minor of that, the minor variant of that kind of voice. And that we find, way after prophecy is already uh, obsolete, we find people having bat call. So it's a, it's, a, it's like prophecy. I won't call it prophecy, but it, 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 it's like it's, it's it's similar in the way that it's some sort of it's like an echo. Well, like between Beishmai and Beihla, right? There wasn't there a voice. That's right. That's how we know the halacha is like Basil. Right? The halacha follows like Basil, right? Even though the, both of these are the word of a living God, but the halacha is like Basil. Right? Is that what you're right, Yeah. Like this one's right and this one's right, but. That's right. This one's. So we know that the, that the, that the schools in of Shammai and Hillel. Right? School, uh, they had arguments. In this era. In this era. Yeah, in this era. Right. Yeah, no, in the, in the Mashiach era, they, they follow Shammai, right? Shammai, right? Shammai. Yeah, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a okay, right. tradition. Is that like that, the building like was shaking? Is that what you're talking about? Well, the building is shaking is another example. That's what, that's with Rabbi Eliezer. Oh. Rabbi Eliezer, he's arguing with the rabbis, and he says, oh, I'm right. He's like, no, you're, we're, we're the majority. He's like, no, but I'm still right, and if I'm right, 
let the uh, let there be a let there be a prophetic voice, and suddenly everyone hears this prophetic voice, a bot call. Mm. And if I'm right, let the river start flowing the other way. And if I'm right, let the tree be uprooted, and the tree gets uprooted, and the river starts flowing the other way. And if I'm right, let the walls of the basement cave in, and the walls start caving in. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and like, doesn't matter. Don't bring us your proofs. Torah's not in the heavens. We have a rule majority rules, nice. and therefore. This is the way it is, and if you don't agree, we're gonna excommunicate you. That's yeah. what we did. That's that's where the majority wins, right? Right. right. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's it's crazy. And I'll tell you that the Sanhedrin, the term Sanhedrin. If you've heard that term, has anyone here heard that term? Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a court. 70. No, seventy-one. Seventy-one. Yeah. Their role. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, the High Court, whatever. Well, it eventually left Israel. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Left Jerusalem. I mentioned that. They left Jerusalem. That's right. Very good. Good call back there, bro. Um, their role is expanded when prophecy ends. Prophecy ends, and then we, the, right at the end point of prophecy, so, so if you heard the name Ezra, you ever heard that name? Ezra is one of the last prophets. And everyone can sense the prophecy is waning. The prophets are getting weaker, 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 like the degree of prophecy. And it's about to end. <clears throat> he reinforces the power of the Sanhedrin <clears throat> by establishing <clears throat> what is known as the men of the great assembly. Have you heard that term? You heard that, right? That is essentially the Sanhedrin that was always in existence. However, it got a much more important role because now, if there's no prophecy, there's no Moses, there's no, there's no breastplate. You know, we don't. We we essentially lost our connection to to you know our divine channel to get answers to our questions. Well, now what? Now we're on our own, basically. We're on our own, and the Sanhedrin is going to play the pivotal role of adjudicating any questions that come up. And thus, from then on, we see lots of disagreements amongst, the Jew, amongst people, but we also have the method of, uh, of, of determining what course of action we take once a disagreement uh, uh, um, happens. So a question. What is the significance of the number seven? Why 71? <laughs> well, there's a simple and there's a complex answer. Which one do you want? Both. How about both? Well, the simple answer is that that is the size of the group of people that God tells Moses to um, to arrange. The Sanhedrin is the longest serving body, judicial body, in world history. Why? Because they're established by Moses, and they so about thirteen hundred BCE, and they continue till four hundred of the Common Era. So seventeen hundred years uninterrupted. Uh, body of seventy, uh, of seventy one, it's really more, but seventy one at least on the on the court itself, uh, judges. So it's uh, I think I believe it's uh, in by Midbar in Numbers ten sixteen. God tells Moses, "Go gather seventy judges, and that will be the Sanhedrin." So seventy plus Moses is seventy one. Did they go up on the mountain and eat lunch or something? That maybe. They uh, they go eat. I don't know if they ate, but they would, like had to go up on the mountain and. Yeah, well, I guess they were they were con- yeah, consecrated. Yeah. Would that be? 
So, well, the profits go away, and everyone's like, "Oh wait." Well, this well, not only that, disagreements are able to. We're human, right? Mm -hmm. Disagreements are going to happen, right? Lack of clarity. I I give a class here. If I ask, if I separate all of you into, into, um, if I interrogate each one of you on your own, which by the way, I'm not planning on doing yet. (laughs) Pending good behavior, I'm not going to do this. But if I did. And I would ask you detailed questions about tonight's discussion. What are the odds that everyone will say the same thing? Zero. Very unlikely, right? You might get the flavor. Yeah. You know. So let's say it wasn't just one hour, one hour and a half long discussion, but it was 14 years. If, you, if we were studying together for 14 years, 18 hours a day. If that's, if that's what we did. It's not one hour, it's, uh, do the math, 18 times 365 times 14. How many, how many, you have the calculator there? Let's do it. So if you have 18 hours a day times 365, let's do 364 because you're not going to study on Tisha B'Av, times 14. So we're talking about 91,728 hours. Assuming that no one killed each other. Yeah. Process. Right. That was... <laughs> That was the, that was the 91,728. That was basic requirements for anyone to be considered anything in the Jewish people. And we have millions and millions and millions of such people. Uh, solely dedicated, and they're not sitting and eating, no offense to anyone here, but when they're studying, they're not sitting and like eating food and sitting back like we are on couches. Like they are investing their life in the pursuit of scholarship. If you had that degree of dedication and time, and then we separated everyone and interrogated them, what are the odds that there would be that there would be disagreements? Well, Probably then, even more. Well, that that there will be disagreements. <laughs> huh? That why, why why do you say more? You have more time to clarify every issue, every potential yeah, issue. Yeah, you have more time, more time to, get to get more questions. That you can yeah, but you then you ask your questions. You have fourteen years to study. You dedicate it's a chunk of your life. You know, it's a chunk, but you're still gonna see it different as another person. Yeah, maybe may, maybe slightly differently. Maybe you have a different flavor to it. But the, but to any any any, you know, just broad disagreements in a principle of a law is very hard to find. You may have a way, different way of expressing it. But if 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 two students have a completely different <coughs> immutable principle that they're going to take away, well, that's a problem, right? Well, actually, you know, <laughs> the more you get into uh, okay. the subject. Right? Go ahead. My chemical engineering. I could spend, well, I did spend five years going into it, right? How many, how many hours a day, how many days a week, how many? A lot. Yeah, yeah probably minimal, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but the more I studied, actually, the more questions I had. Oh, yeah? yeah. And the more, uh, so, like, if I spent however many hours doing it, I would, like, I, and, 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 I and, generate and, more And questions. that's why there's so many questions, because you're exposing yourself to a much bigger world. And by the way, this is the minimum. This is what's expected of everyone. Like anyone who has any basic Jewish education in, in, in times past, that's what they had. But the idea of two people coming out with a completely yeah. dramatic, different understanding of a certain principle is very unlikely. But even if that, uh, there's a lot of laws that we're talking about. There's an incredible amount of minutia of laws. Uh, and therefore, it's going to happen. There are going to be disagreements, slight disagreements, 
is we can forget. We have to always constantly study to know to not to to, to battle uh, forgetfulness. It's going to happen. Well, even if that does happen, it's going to be quickly resolved. So yes, I, while I would agree to you that there were going to be Mahlokas arguments earlier, but the arguments that are easily resolved. Once you take away prophecy, you take away the Umatuman, right? and then you're, we're on our own, even if we maintain the commitment and motivation and degree of dedication to scholarship that we've had in the past, but those slight disagreements that are only naturally going to happen, well, that's going to be a problem because that, that's what's going to create a mahokas. What happens in that? And that's why the Sanhedrin's role of adjudicating these disagreements is so crucial. Because if you do not come with one solution, and even if it's the wrong solution, but let there be only one solution, because then you have united people. Once you have this rabbi saying, well, I studied it this way. This rabbi says, I studied it that way. No matter how fine and minute the disagreement is, well, you have two Judaisms because there's different practices. And that's why it's better, even if the rabbis get it wrong. That's why the verse we read in the Parsha a few weeks ago, that uh, you have to listen to what the Sanhedrin says, even if they tell you that what right is left, what, what left is right and right is left. I told you, this is your left hand, left arm. You would say, we'll be lofted. You would, say, what? you would say, we'll be uh, lofted. So sad, you know. It's nothing, what's that What's that line? Uh, there's no greater waste than the human mind. What's right. the, yeah. nothing to squander the human mind. That. It's uh, one of the Negro colleges. That, they, that was their, uh, that was their motto. The only blacks were only allowed to go to certain colleges. What is it? What, guys, you want, you're Americans here. Don't look at me. It's uh, Booker T. Washington. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Um, I think a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Thank you. Yeah, that's fine. That's what you would say. Right? If I say this is your your left arm. (laughs) But if you come to the Sanhedrin, says the Talmud, it says the Torah, it's the Torah, and they tell you right is left, that's where you got to listen to them. Now, why is that? Why would you have to listen to them? Something as nonsensical. Yeah, I kind of agree with Ben. Like, they said something... So off, like as it was, if it was off, like directly to something Torah said, you would be discredited. The Sanhedrin would be. If you told me this was my left arm and it's like obviously my right, you know, I would it would be a little discrediting of me, of you. Okay, but the Torah says if you go to the Sanhedrin, not to me, and they tell you something, they tell you right's left, left's right, you got to listen. That's what the Torah said. That that can mean multiple things. Number one, it can mean that Sanhedrin made a mistake. And there are opinions that say that that's what the Torah is saying. Even if the Sanhedrin made a mistake, and to you it's so clear as day that they're wrong, you still got to follow them. Why? Because it's better to have one mistake in one area and not lose the supremacy of Sanhedrin because if they're gone, well, then it's chaos. Because they're gone, and then suddenly we have no way to ensure that mistakes are, are whittled away, are whittled out, and therefore every guy who has any mistake, that's going to create every... Slight schism and understanding is going to create a new religion. That's one way to understand it. Another way to understand it is that, yes, to you it might seem like something so obvious and patently simple as, as this is my right arm, but maybe you're wrong. What if you're wrong? Is it possible it's something that's so clear to you, but you're actually wrong? And the Sanhedrin, which is the most skilled rabbis of the Jewish people, they're right and you're wrong? But what if? 
Yeah, but we don't we don't we don't play around with this kind of stuff. No, 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 like higher power pets. Like uh, as the Talmud says, it's not in the heavens. It's our responsibility, and we have to use the best of our abilities, and we have to do everything we can. And this idea of transmitting the Torah, maintaining the Torah, is so important that it's it's vital. It's vital to to the Jewish people, of course, but to humanity as well. Because the Torah is not just a recipe for, for Jews, but it's Jews in their role of being the harbingers of goodness in the world. So if we're out, you know, if we're nuked, nuked in the figurative sense, uh, if we are not a factor anymore in the world, well, the world is doomed. And that would be unfortunate. Thus, essentially maintaining the integrity of the Torah is the most important mission in the entire world. And that's why there's so much invested into that. Because once we lose that, the Jewish people are going to quickly devolve into multiple religions. And when that happens, the world's mission is in great peril. Sense here. When I tell you, or when the Senator tells you that your right is your left and left is right, it could mean that they made a mistake. And you know what? Even if they made a mistake, it's better to follow them. It also could mean that you're actually wrong. And to you, it's so obvious, but you're actually wrong. And I'll give you some example. You know what? This is going to be controversial. I'm going to skip the controversial examples. Oh. <laughs> but there were. The, I'll give you guys some examples, okay? I'll say, I thought it was controversial. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Oh, so, ooh, let's settle down. <laughs> I got more to say. But, let, but let's give some examples in, 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 in Jewish history where people made decisions based upon what they were sure is right. And so sure that, that they were right that. Um, it was patently obvious that anyone who disagreed with him was silly. Um, so let's give one example here. Like the Hellenists. Good example. Sure that they're right. The Hellenists they had such conviction in their life philosophy, yet now in hindsight we see that they were incredibly wrong and harmful to the Jewish people. Right? What were the Hellenists? They were the ones who um, argued for the adoption and the integration of Greek culture into Jewish life. And this was a massive force amongst the Jewish people, not today, but 2,200 years ago, 2,100 years ago, and even 2,000 years ago. They were a huge force. There were the Hellenists, there were the Sadducees, other groups. These were groups that argued, and maybe very logically, that we have to take um, a, uh, a position where our belief system and our system of law, uh, of, of law is not in conflict with what the Greeks say. And we know that that was a grievous error uh, in hindsight. It's one of the historical mistakes have made. Um, following false messiahs, another example. But I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a contemporary example. Uh, this is the controversial one. And I, you know what? And I, I, and, I, and I will try to mitigate the uh, the controversy before I even tell you what I'm talking about. I got that mistake. We kept in a second by saying <laughs> that that what by finish my sentence. Yeah, I'm going to mitigate the fallout of my controversy by saying that this was not this was actually uh, argued by a conservative rabbi to me. So I'm just telling you what he said, and he said 
that in the 1950s there was a halacha, psak halacha, so to speak, in the conservative movement, allowing driving on Shabbat to synagogue only. Why? What was the rationale? Because the Jew, a lot of Jew, conservative uh, Judaism follows halacha. Uh, it's binding. And therefore, if you can't drive on Shabbat, people aren't going to come to shul. Hmm. Right? So what they say, you allow to drive on Shabbat, but only to shul. And the logic is very overwhelmingly clear. Like, if you allow Jews to drive to shul, only to shul, yeah. well then you'll boost shul participation and the, the, the aggregate will be better off. That was the argument. And according to the uh, unnamed conservative rabbi, that I spoke to, he said that his teacher, JTS, told him that this was the downfall of the conservative movement. Why? Because what happened afterwards? What happens? Right? If Jew, if the conservative Jews cannot drive on Shabbat, well, they have to live near the synagogue. So what do you have? You have little, every synagogue has a cluster of a community around it. Well, what happens when now the Jews can drive to the synagogue? Well, they can move, they live wherever they want. Well, what happens to the intermarriage rate? What happens to the assimilation rate? What happens when your kids has no Jewish friends? What happens down the line, 50 years down the line? Well, we see what happens down the line. And you know what? We had uh, Lee Wunsch. Lee Wunsch, I don't know who Lee Wunsch is. Lee Wunsch is the president and CEO of the yeah. Houston Feder- Federation, Federation, Jewish Federation. And he spoke to a group of our torch. There's a picture of it in the calendar here. We had a barbecue for our, uh, our young professionals at that division of torch. Oh, there's a picture of these people once. <laughs> and, <laughs> sorry. And. You know what? There's a picture of. Here's a picture on. on it's pork and crawfish. <laughs> a picture on the month of. Oh, the first month, September. This month. Here we go. Look at the month of September, first month. And he spoke to our young adults. He had 60 young adults at the event. You know what he told us? You know what he, he said? This is Lee Wunsch. And they have it on, on file. What did he say? He said to our young people that him and his wife, Ro, they are members of Beth Yishurin. They go there every single Friday night. And Beth Yishurin is the biggest conservative shul in America. In America? Yes. Beth Yishurin in Houston. The biggest conservative shul in America. And he says him and his wife in their 60s are the youngest people there. So we can say clearly that the arguments, while it may have seemed crystal clear and so obvious in the 50s, today is clearly a grievous error. Because while the intent was pure, we can assume at least, uh, that their intention was, you know, was, was righteous, and that was to increase people coming to shul, well, the, actually, the decision was actually a mistake. And I would argue that this may be an example of, to them, maybe at the time, it was something that was so obvious, it was like, it's your right hand, of course you're right hand. And the senator comes and they say, no, no, it's a mistake. This is, a, you know, this is not your right hand, this is your left hand. This is a bad move. And they say, dude, you're, 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 you know, you're, of course, we see Jews that are coming to shul. Of course we should uh, allow them to drive only to shul. Now, now the conservative Jews, they drive everywhere but shul. Uh, and... Right, so it's controversial, and I know it's controversial, they but I... Huh? Yeah. They all moved out to Cyprus. That's why Shlom Cyprus is the Bay Hotel. <laughs> oh, so that one said, come and... Yeah, that'd be, that'd be the shul. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, 
And I, you know, it's. Our members to drive our shops. Hmm? We shouldn't allow our members to drive our shops. Yeah. Make sure that all the rooms are. We need okay. special lights up in here. I don't know what the switches. All the all the Shabbat lights. And the. The um, it, so it wouldn't shut off on us. No electric doors. And yeah, in the in, in Israel, all the hotels have keys, have manual keys for Shabbat. People don't want to let you stick that in. Oh. You flick it on lights, on, you know. Either way, this is an example. I, what about I can think. Lock? What about yeah. locks? You're changing the reality. You're making it locked too. Yeah, so we have to learn the laws of building, but it's clear from what's building that's, that's not a problem. You have to but what about building. the fan changing the reality from one day to the next? Well, yeah, the fan is, so you can't turn the fan on Shabbat, but if it's on already, kids will enjoy it. Yeah, just, just leave it on and just go no, to bed. No, forgetting the electricity part. You mentioned it changed the reality if you change. Mm-hmm. You forget the electricity piece. Like the fifth or sixth thing you said. Yeah, okay. Molded. Yeah, you can't change the reality. Oh, so you're saying, why is the lock not molded? It's a good question, but it's not. But it's a good question. I have to learn the details. It's a a very complicated book. I know people... You can't carry the key inside. I know people that... uh, um, I know people that spend... Literally, large chunks of their life designing their home with Shabbos, which is very, very big and very intense. Yeah, I don't really understand the difference between electrical and mechanical. Well, let's do it. You know, get the books, and there's a lot of uh, reading that we need to do to catch up. Either way, um, controversial um, idea aside, um, I, I do think that there's a possibility for us to to really think and have conviction and actually be wrong. Uh, or perhaps what it means is the Sanhedrin is telling you, hey. Where's your right hand? Face me. If you face me, your right hand's on that side, right? But if you face that way, your right hand's on that side. Well, maybe what it means is they're telling you right, left, left is right. What they're telling you is your direction is wrong. Ooh. And obviously that's, <laughs> and that is something which is even more painful to hear because that is not an indictment on a certain behavior or act, but it's an indictment or, or it's, a, it's calling to question your entire direction in life, so to speak. And no one wants to hear that about their life, that the life that their life direction is wrong. But says the Torah, even if it tells you that, well, maybe that's what it means. Either way, clearly at this point in time, Sanhedrin is going to become a very vital, pivotal, essential, crucial uh, body, governing body of the Jewish people, because their chief job is to enable and ensure smooth. Transition, transmission of the oral Torah. And when that became untenable, because the Sanhedrin was disbanded, it had to be written down. Because if it wasn't written down, it would be lost forever. Has anybody ever tried or thought about putting it back together? Actually, well, that, th- that's what the Talmud is. No, the, 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 the Oh, the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. Oh, Sanhedrin. They've been yeah. trying. Yeah, so mm-hmm. there's a movement to, 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 to put it back together. Amani's <coughs> outlines have to Yeah, yeah, well, 71. You know, there's, there's, there's some problems you have to um, descendants to uh, Sanhedrin to get consensus and, and the requirements to be on the Sanhedrin are very very exhaustive um, for example a Sanhedrin cannot hear a testimony from an interpreter so every language that people can potentially speak the Sanhedrin has to be fluent in that language every individual of Sanhedrin has to be fluent in that language wow. 
So the Talmud says that some of the members of the Sanhedrin spoke f- 70 languages. That's so mind-boggling. that's mind-boggling, but that's not the, that that's the easiest thing for the Bible to do. Like that's you know that 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 part's easy. <laughs> Is that on top of the Oh yeah, it's. I mean, the, the, this is. You study it. Oh yeah, and you even when you, even when you're, it. even when you're admitted to Sanhedrin, and this is what I mentioned earlier in passing, so we said there's 71, but there's actually in the Sanhedrin, uh, um, uh, in in the venue where Sanhedrin was located, you had three groups of 23, so 69 more scholars that were apprentices, like clerks, that were clerking for Sanhedrin, and they were there. Uh, because they were on the, uh, you know, they were on the uh, waiting list. They were on standby. They were your so alternate jurors. <laughs> they were the just in case someone. Not, well, yeah, exactly. So, someone, someone who is, uh, someone in the Sanhedrin, someone dies in the Sanhedrin. Their spot is vacated, obviously, and then the most senior of the sixty-nine apprentices. He gets uh, now. He gets uh, he gets the next seat on the on the Sanhedrin. They don't hundred games it out. Hundred games. <laughs> <it out. laughs> no, and then everyone moves up a slot. So sixty-eight becomes sixty-nine, and fifty-two becomes fifty-three, and then they have to nominate someone from the community, the greatest scholar in the community, who's not part of the Sanhedrin or the lower courts of the Sanhedrin, gets nominated to join. You could be eighty years old before you even get a spot. Yeah, because think about it. There's 16. Once you're nominated, there are actually you need 69 more people to die before you actually get your seat in the Sanhedrin. And that's essentially the entire Sanhedrin. Sounds like a great story, great book. Yeah. The guy really wanted it. Agatha Christie. Oh God. That is that's sacrilegious. My goodness. Like a damn brown book. Guys, um, we didn't wow. even get to talk about what uh, this was a lot more fun than I, what I anticipated. So, Good. either way, I feel we got like a little bit of a of an insight oh, into into oral Torah, written Torah. And they did eat. Oh, there we go. Okay. Oh, so they were nominated, and they went to. Huh? They, they saw the throne, whatever it was. Got the vision, vision of. Oh, okay. Well, so no, these are, these are not the yet. seventy elders yet. That's a, a different, different seventy, right? So go to uh, yes. Yeah, so this is not the seventy. These are the elders. We don't know the unnamed elders. Uh, why they're not named is also a question. But they're not named. With his two loaves of bread and five fish. So we got a little bit of an insight into the oral Torah, the written Torah, how they interrelate, what the process of transmission yeah, is. Huh? A lot of Shabbat stuff covered. Shabbat stuff, yeah. I, I, wow. yeah well, that could go on forever. Yeah, this was a good discussion. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks a I lot. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I don't believe I'll be seeing you guys um, next week because we're the Dolphins next week. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And, and then there's the holidays. Then there's Rosh Hashanah. So, Kasiva uh, Vachatimatova, which is a traditional blessing that we say uh, when, we see, when we say goodbye to people on the holiday, in the month preceding. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, which means Siva means writing, Chasiva means stamping. So if I wish you to have a good writing, good stamping, which means that you know that we like we read in Rosh Hashanah that Rosh Hashanah is a day where someone's verdict is is, is written, but it doesn't get finalized in Yom Kippur.
So may you all have a wonderful, sweet, and happy new year. And it's another fantastic year of Torah growth and study with me. It was awesome this past year. Yeah. Do another round. And, uh, and it was a pleasure. It really was. And I hope if I uh, mistreated any one of you guys that you'll forgive me completely. Um, I'm well, letting you break. forgive you, but he never mistreated you. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm just glad you came back. And And yes, I look forward to seeing you guys in uh, 5776, right? Yep. See you next year. Okay. All the best, guys. I still have a question. Question, though, shoot. Ra- it's rattling in my mind. Go ahead. And it's a previous question I asked. Remind me, what was the question? Okay, it was the pursuer question. Pursuer. Yeah. <laughs> well, did pursuer? you ask this one in your mind? You asked it today? tonight. No, no, I didn't ask it tonight. I asked oh, it yeah. like a month and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> Is she still waiting for her answer? Okay, sorry. You didn't have to remind me the question. Cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger. And okay, so in the Torah. You're supposed to protect yourself if someone's you trying to you. kill you. That's right. However, you're not supposed to give away if you're hiding someone and they could be potentially killed. So the question was, if someone came up to you and held a gun to your head, would you have to tell or would you have to keep your mouth shut? Paint the scenario again. Some comes with a gun to the head, that much I got. They say, if you don't do X, I'll shoot you. What's X? If you don't tell me where you're hiding the guy you're hiding, I'm going to shoot you. Oh, that's the informer. The informer. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the informer, okay. Can I, and that's going to lead to that person's death? Yes. Then that would not be allowed. So you would The question shot. I think is a good question. If we're not sure, it's going to lead to his death. So you would what get shot just... before you tell where you're hiding the person. Oh, yeah, because then you're, you're allowing the guy to get killed. But you're so, allowing yourself to get killed. Well, yes. But the question is, do you have a right? Do you? It's, it's a good question. I think it's, it's a good question. I, I remember I remember the question now because I said it was a good question then, right? But but there wasn't an answer at the time. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's uh, it's worthy of investigation. I'll tell you why. And this may be a little bit inside baseball here. Like this, someone comes puts a gun to and says, "Shoot the other guy, or I shoot you." No, don't shoot. The I, know, I, know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay. We'll, we'll work. We'll get to your example, right? Know. I come to someone, someone comes to someone and says, hey, shoot the other guy or else I shoot you. <coughs> then you, the Talmud says, clearly you cannot kill someone to save yourself. Why? So the words that it uses is, who says your blood is redder than his blood? Maybe his blood is redder than yours. We spoke about that uh, Friday, uh, Thursday night when you came to the to initial. Somebody you? Now the question is like this. That that we are not allowed to allow someone to die in order to save our own skin, does that mean that we're not allowed to kill them to save ourselves? Or we're not allowed them not, not allowed to allow them to get killed in order to save ourselves? That's really what your question is. Because maybe technically, when when I let, let, let's let's zoom out a little bit here. You know, if, if it's a little hard to follow, it's because it's a little hard to follow. When I say, when someone says, "Hey, I'll sh- you know, I'll, I'll shoot you unless you eat the cheeseburger," which is not kosher, prohibited by Torah law. What do you got to do? You got to eat the cheeseburger. Why? 
How are you allowed to eat the cheeseburgers? Don't eat cheeseburgers. His wife is. His wife is. But so what? How are you able to do something that's prohibited by Torah law? Technically, mechanically, well, how's it working? There's a prohibition. Where's the prohibition waived? You're, you're saving life. Okay. Your own, you're you're saving saving life. life. So the saving life waives the prohibition. Is that right? So now the case of murder. The guy comes up with the same gun to the head. This time he's not saying eat a cheeseburger, he's saying go kill someone. So you can't do it. Why not? It's three prohibitions. But I understand that you cannot do it. But why not? Technically, back to the technical. Because murder cannot be waived. Is that what it's saying? Can Is it that the prohibition of murder is so severe that it cannot be waived? Or the result of someone dying can't be waived? You, you hear that little subtle difference? It sounds like some, some, someone dying, right? It doesn't say, hey, who allows you to murder? It says he, just like it says he cannot eat cheeseburgers, it says he cannot murder. Right? So how is that waived? So maybe it's not waived. The prohibition of murder is not waived. Well, if the prohibition of murder is not waived, therefore you can't kill him to save yourself. But there's no prohibition of murder in the sense of if the other guy is going to kill him. Murder in terms of self-defense is allowed. True. We're not dealing with cases of self-defense here. There's the, there's the, right? There, there is self-defense. It's, not, it's only self-defense if the victim of, of that you're going to kill is the cause of your bodily harm. Of your harm. So, for example, can I kill someone because I need their kidney? Self-defense, right? They have a kidney. I need one. Right? <laughs> Is that allowed? You just have to leave them in the bathtub full of ice. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. From Bucky's. From Bucky's. Cheaper. Right? If you want, if you want, you had lots of money, you would buy a kidney yourself, right? Clearly, this is... Uh, Okay, How so to I get see, kidneys on the cheap, right? Am I allowed to kill someone because they're posing a threat to me, right? Because they have my kidney. Well, no. They're, the reason why I'm about to die is not because of them. It's because of my failing kidney. They're the remedy. They're not the cause. You can't kill someone because they have the remedy to your problem. But you're about to say, oh, he's hiding behind the couch. To answer your question? So he shoots him instead of... His no, so that you would not be able to do either. No, but that's not direct murder. So to answer your question, no, that's why it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a technical question. Technically, if we say that the prohibition of not killing someone to save yourself is just because you cannot waive the uh, you cannot waive the prohibition against murder to save yourself. Well, is this murder? To tell someone where someone's staying is that murder? It, well, I'm not killing someone. It's not murder. The other guy's killing. I'm, go, I'm, I'm bringing it about. I'm assisting someone in murdering. But I'm not actually murdering someone. So maybe then it wouldn't be allowed. But I think everyone agreed that, what, that, that what's different about, about murder is the fact that the guy's dead. That's why it's more severe. And therefore, what it's saying is I cannot do something to save myself, if that doing something is going to, be going to bring about someone's demise, well, then it wouldn't matter if that demise is going to happen as a result of my murder or as a result of someone else's murder. Okay. So I would say it's not allowed. Okay. I think that's what I'm agreed upon. Does make sense? Yes. But it's a little technical. Person. That's why it's a complicated. It's a good question because it's because it really depends. How do we understand the prohibition of 
murdering someone in a case where, yeah. right, in case of, of saving yourself. That's right. But if you, if you don't shoot the other person, your life is going to be gone. So, so but your life might be gone anyhow, you know. The fa- the, that's true. Your life might be gone, and that's unfortunate. Either way, but it doesn't. It doesn't that's true. So then, what do you do? You both go for the guy with the gun. Well, if you can, then that would be great. <laughs> yeah, you wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> if you can, that would be great. Uh, but the quite the problem is, is that you're not allowed to commit murder. So thus, if you die, you die without committing murder. If the other, you know, if you kill the guy, yeah, then he dies. So the net. The net amount of death is the same, but the question is, what, what's what's right for you to do, and what's right for you to do is to not commit murder. But if you commit murder because of self defense, self defense is remember what's self defense? Self defense doesn't mean that killing the guy is my remedy. It means that that Try killing the guy is away. getting rid of the problem. Thus, if I, if a guy comes and puts a gun to your head and says, "Kill a third party," you would not be allowed to kill the third party but you will allowed to be killed the guy who put the gun to your head. Because he is the cause of your life being in peril, not the remedy. Mm. Made sense, guys? Yep. Okay. This is a lot of fun. Good. Very uh, broad uh, variety of... I have a question. Oh, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier that the two words tied together for marriage was when yes, um, yes, just Moses good. was uh, bearing... Not Moses, Abraham. I'm sorry. Abraham was bearing Sarah. But um, didn't they offer that for free? And then he's like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I want to pay. So why would that be tied to marriage? I don't even understand that. You question. Did your wife only marry you because of the ring that you got her that was worth $40? $40. Um, I don't know. You have to ask her that question. What do you you think? (laughs) I hope not. You hope not, right? Right. Maybe 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 it's precisely... Uh, connection as a result that yes your wife would have married you for free it wasn't because of the simple gold ring that you gave her remember you don't, we don't get married with, with, with diamond rings diamond, right? the ring is a simple wedding band well maybe maybe it's actually precisely comparable because there also the guy initially said take it for free and then he insisted on, on having some monetary transaction so the Torah is saying even though your wife may say Ugh, don't, you don't need the ring I'll marry you regardless Still, you have to do the money kind of transaction. How lovely is that? Uh, see, mine was off for the money. Huh? In the va- mine was off for the money. In the vows, we have it on tape. She says, for richer, for richer. For richer, for richer. Who's richer? It is richer. <laughs> okay, everyone. What happened to the breastplate? Yeah. Well, a lot of things are. We don't know where they are. Uh, we don't know where Indiana the arc Jones is. So what, 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 what causes the evolution, if it's working, what causes the evolution of them to, to turn away from it? Do you mean? Something new? I think it was lost. What, the, yeah, what happened lost. to it? The breastplate. Well, that, uh, the breastplate, but there's other things as well. Like there's the shulchan, the, what's called table, the table in the temple, uh, the ark of the covenant in the temple. They're gone. We don't know where they are. It's po- It's likely this. There's, there's a lot of, uh, of 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 right. You can Google this. There's a lot, a lot of theories. Whatever. It seems likely that this was uh, archived by by some coins. Archived it, put it someplace that we have no idea where it is. I know some guy once theorized that they were in these these caves that are impossible to reach. Somehow they got them in there. Place. You know. Either way, we don't know where they are. That's that's the correct answer. So they did it because it was in danger of. 
Yeah, when they saw that the uh, kind of light, the, or, or that they, 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 the writing was on the wall, they saw it was over for them, and they didn't want the uh, sacred vessels of the temple being in the hands of the non-Jews, even though they were, like, you know, Ahasuerus, yeah, Persian right. king, he had a bunch of them. So we don't know where they are exactly and where they are now. It's a very intriguing uh, topic of mystique. They're hidden in a clay pot. Well, I don't know where they are. That's the correct answer. <laughs> okay, everyone. Thanks All a lot, right. guys. Cool.